Thank you and enjoy the show. So for a second time, uh, for the audience, uh, this this is Dr. Matthew Watto. We this is just, the third time we've we just it. we just recorded an intro and outro, and I forgot to press record, so we're going to do it again. <laughs> I'll right. peek behind the curtain. <laughs> Yay! I'm here with my two co-hosts, Paul Williams and Stuart Brigham, and uh, we're going to go quicker than usual because it's right. the third third or fourth time we've done this. Paul, can you tell people what we do on this show? Well, we interview experts and bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. That's right. On this, epi- on this episode, we had a great guest, uh, and we were talking about the knee, knee pain, the knee exam, and a very quick and practical approach to all Nora that. Toronto wrote, wrote the script, right? This script was written by, that's right, Stuart, this script was written by a wonderful correspondent, Nora Toronto, who is a medical student at the University of Chicago. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Ted Parks. He's an orthopedic surgeon with a specialty in sports medicine, joint replacement, and arthroscopy. He works in Denver, Colorado at Western Orthopedics. He's been there since 1994. He went to Yale Medical School. He did residency training at UCLA and fellowship in sports medicine at Cincinnati, where he specialized in advanced arthroscopic knee and shoulder reconstruction. In his career, he has served as team physician for high school, college, and professional sports team. Currently, in addition to his practice at Western Orthopedics, he's a clinical professor at the University of Colorado Denver School of Medicine and has received the Outstanding Clinical Faculty Teaching Award for his teaching there. Dr. Parks is an instructor at the American College of Physicians and has been chosen by 5280 Magazine as one of Denver's top docs 14 years in a row. In addition to being named one of U.S. News and World Report's best orthopedic surgeons multiple times, Since 2014, he has been working on a book, which he just published, called Practical Office Orthopedics, which was published with McGraw-Hill and the American College of Physicians. We talk about a lot of the pearls that are contained in that book specific to the knee exam, but there's a lot of other useful pearls for other joint exams and uh, care of other joints in that book as well. So without further ado, here is our very high-yield talk with Dr. Ted Parks. And if you want to see a video of his 30-second knee exam, you can check that out on our YouTube channel, which has been posted up there by Chris Chuman Chu. That was flawless. You need to listen to this one. Need to listen to this one. <laughs> I I think when you have to repeat the pun to make sure people got it, it's, it's maybe questionable how good it is. Rule of threes in comedy. Just keep saying it until it gets funny. It's pretty deep immersion. It's a one-on-one with me, and we do everything together. We, we eat together. We see every patient together. We, we do they move into your house. They do, <laughs> yeah. We, just, okay. we, we drive, drive your cars. Together. <laughs> well, let's, let's move into this. So we're talking here with Dr. Ted Parks, and he is an orthopedic surgeon from Colorado. Dr. Parks, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. And we, we're going to call you Ted. Is that okay? We'll Absolutely. We'll call you Ted for, yes. for the show. Uh, it always makes us uncomfortable, but we, we, we always call people by their first names That's on the show. That's fine with me. And let's start off with a, a one-liner about yourself, just to give the audience a sense. You're a really interesting guy. We've been talking for a while. Tell them a little bit about yourself outside of just as an orthopedic surgeon. I think by nature, I'm a mechanic, really. And uh, I guess if I had to pick a one-liner to describe myself, I'd say that I'm the luckiest mechanic on the planet. 
because uh, mechanics, we like to work on complicated things, and uh, there are a lot of complicated cars and machines to work on, but probably the most beautiful and complicated machine on the planet is the human body, and I'm one of the few people who gets to open the hood on that machine <laughs> and, uh, and work on it, and it's, it's really a pleasure and an honor to be able to do that. Yeah, the rest of us around this table don't have the guts to open the uh, open the human body the it's way. It's not that, that yeah. bad. I can spend an hour with me. You can do some surgery. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to spend a bunch of time on the knee. We'll ask you a couple more questions before we move on to that. So, yeah, one question I, I ask our guests is a a book that you might recommend that every physician should read. Like, is there a text that you can think of? Absolutely, maybe, I brought it with me. Even. Maybe that focuses on the <laughs> exam, something orthopedic oriented that might be helpful for this. Yeah, mm, let me think for a second. Um, this is a book that just came out in December, and uh, this book uh, is published by McGraw Hill. And at last a uh, couple years ago, ACP meeting. Uh, that McGraw-Hill and the ACP approached me and asked me to take the lectures that I've been giving as well as other lectures on other body parts like foot, ankle, hand, wrist, etc. Basically a comprehensive head-to-toe orthopedic uh, text. <clears throat> take those lectures and put them into text form in a book that people could have and use as a resource. So uh, that led to this project and it was supposed to be really easy. The person from McGraw-Hill said, all you got to do is just take your lectures and just dictate them, and then we'll put it into text, and we'll be done. Sure. And I thought, boy, that sounds easy. And, of course, it wasn't like that. It was, it was much more difficult, and it took about three years to do. And uh, the nice thing is, is I've always promised the residents I would make a binder for them with all of the stuff so that when they leave, they could have something more lasting. And I was just too lazy to do it. So this ended up being <laughs> that binder, and it's great now to, uh, to give those out to the residents. Uh, and they found them really helpful. So that's my book that I think everybody should read. Even if you're not in medicine, read it. It's got some great pictures in it. And it says there's uh, 19 left on Amazon, so better hurry up and order them. Yeah, great. Yeah, it's <laughs> sold out five times so far on Amazon. Wow. So. Oh, congratulations. Wow. That's Thank amazing. You. Yeah. I think they only stock like five. So. <laughs> <laughs> or 19. Yeah, there you go. Yes. So, uh, so, so Ted, you, you have an interesting story about, a, uh, about an invention that you made. Yes. Can you tell us a little, little about that? Yeah. So in uh, 1997, my daughter was born. And prior to her being born, I used to exercise a lot. And I liked running and being outside. And uh, when she was born, that all came to an abrupt halt. If you, Those of you who have kids know what I'm talking about. Sure. So I needed a way no to clue. stay fit uh, indoors when she was taking a nap or whatever. So I brought my... Uh, or my bike that I usually ride inside, and they make a little stand that you can put on the rear wheel to allow it to become a stationary bike. And I pedaled that thing all the time, but it was extremely boring. So the first thing I did is, like a lot of people do, I put it in front of the TV. And then just to make it more fun, I built a little device that uh, if you didn't pedal past a certain RPM threshold, it would turn the TV off. So it was a threshold device, and I thought that was cool, and I was going to market it. And it turned out someone had already done that a long time ago. I don't know why it didn't become commercially successful. But then uh, I went one step further. And at the time, uh, a friend of mine was a big video gamer. And uh, he introduced me to some racing video games. And being a car uh, nut and a mechanic, I like the car racing videos. And I figured out a way to hook up my stationary bike using some of the electronics I'd built for the threshold device uh, to substitute 
and plug and play in the place of the handheld controller that you would normally use <laughs> to control the race. So uh, there was a Daytona 500 simulation race that took about an hour to finish, and I'd be the car, and when I turned the steering wheel of my bike, it would turn the wheels of the car, and the faster I pedaled, the faster my car went. So I could get a great workout, and it was really entertaining. The graphics on those games, and this is 97, they're so much better now. The graphics are so real that you forget that you're exercising. And uh, so uh, that was the idea, and that evolved into a patent and I sold the patent to a company that tried to make it in the market and it really didn't do well in the market it, but but it was the genesis for a lot of the things that you'll see now uh, like the um, Peloton and uh, other interfaces that are physical uh, the you know uh, Xbox makes and we make uh, interfaces that are physical where you your body movements uh, let you participate physically in the game and I think a lot of people were concerned that kids playing video games weren't getting enough exercise so there was sort of a need Need for this interface that promoted motion and exercise with video games. So I like to think that I was on the ground floor of, of developing that with something that ended up being not successful. Yeah, you hate to generalize, but probably the Venn diagram between video game fanatics and exercise fanatics is just two circles. Yeah, that don't touch. <laughs> yeah. They're actually different rooms. <laughs> yeah, <I think>. right. <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, why don't with that? Why don't we start talking about the knee a little bit? Oh no, you know what? I want to get this question. What is some great advice that you've gotten in your career, whether as a learner or as a teacher, that you can share with our audience? Wow. Um, I'll think of a couple. Um, the, probably the best one-liner that a professor told me, uh, and this was in college maybe, was um, the, the adage, and I don't know where it comes from, but I like it a lot, and it's, hear and I forget, see and I remember, do and I understand. And nice. I think that really is true of so many things, not just in medicine, but uh, to really learn it. You got to do it, uh, not just hear about it or read it or look at it. Uh, another one I like uh, is uh, um, here's one that's sort of orthopedic-y because it has the word bone in it. Uh, it's uh, <laughs> to be successful in life, you have to have three bones. Uh, you have to have a wishbone, a backbone, and a funny bone. And I think that a patient told me that. And I think that's awesome. I think yeah. that's, that's really hilarious. Okay. So now we're ready to start talking about bones and joints. Yeah, so there's a case, uh, Miss Anita Bones, which, um, wait a minute, is that the, that is the that's name? The, that's okay. the case, yeah, <laughs> okay. unfortunately. So, so, <laughs> our case is Miss Anita Bones, a 63-year-old lady that we saw at Cashlack Memorial Hospital coming in with left knee pain, says that it's painful, um, it's been a little bit swollen and stiff for the past week, she's been having pain and stiffness on and off for the past year, sometimes it's both knees, sometimes just one. She did fall two days ago when she like tripped on a groove in the sidewalk and fell down on her left side. She didn't necessarily hit her knee. She says that it's, it hurts when she works up, wakes up in the morning. It doesn't go away throughout the day, um, at least not immediately. And uh, sometimes she feels like it goes out. It's, it, her knee gives out, and it might be worse when she descends stairs. I think w with knee pain, we see it so commonly. A lot of us don't know like which part of this history is noise and which part of the history we should pay attention to. So what what do you pay attention to when you're getting a history about knee pain? Yeah, so the one thing that sticks out in my mind, I think if I listened correctly, it's she's 63 years old, is that mm -hmm. correct? And I'm getting the feeling for somebody who has a chronic problem and then sort of an acute on chronic mm -hmm. episode when she fell recently. Yeah. Uh, I also heard that it's bilateral. Yeah. So all of a sudden, my threshold for things like the emergency things, like infection, is going down. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, so there's a chronic element, it, the bilateral element. Those things really would be unlikely uh, for infection. And I think whenever you approach an orthopedic problem or maybe 
any problem in medicine, probably the first layer in the approach is recognize and eliminate the red flag emergency stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, fortunately, in orthopedics, there are only a few emergencies. There's a chapter in this book called Orthopedic Emergencies to help allay your anxieties about orthopedic emergencies, how to recognize them and treat them. Uh, but uh, in, in this patient, uh, the emergency that we might consider it would be an infection. And uh, joint infections are emergencies only because the longer they're in there, the more they destroy the knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't feel like we have an infection here. So uh, other things you might look for to rule out infection would be redness, warmth, those can be there with inflammatory things that aren't infection. Uh, but it's really a gestalt about the uh, extremists of the patient. You know, people with knee infections have a knee that's swollen and tense and really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Every few hours, the bacteria are multiplying, and that's putting more pressure on the joint. So these people are really uncomfortable. They have a fever. Uh, I don't see those signs here. So I'm going to say that we've passed the first layer. We're not dealing with an emergency. Mm-hmm. We can cool our jets and really think about this a little bit. Uh, I would guess that what this person has is a degenerative process like arthritis. And when you have arthritis in your knee, that knee is much more susceptible to little tweaks and twists. So the fall she had would bug her knee way more than it would somebody who has a normal knee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, you know, you can never, you know, it's very hard without examining the patient and all that. But uh, I think uh, getting back to the purpose of of this talk and the book and the lectures and everything else, we want a framework that we can use to apply when we see patients like her. And the framework is, number one, eliminate emergencies. And then uh, number two, try to fit the patient into one of four or five buckets, okay? And uh, the, the if you know these buckets, you will know pretty much everything you'll ever see that walks into an orthopedic office. Okay. And that is, number one, a ligament injury. Mm-hmm. Number two, a meniscus injury. Number three, arthritis, and number four, problems of the patellofemoral joint. And we won't go into those in, in big detail, but, uh, you know, the ligament injury patients, there has to be a lot of violence to tear these ligaments. The mm-hmm. ligaments in your knee are as big as your pinky finger, and if you imagine trying to pull that in half, that's how much force you have to generate to pop one of these ligaments. And I don't get that from that history so far, okay? The neat thing about ligaments is they're very easy to detect, uh, ligament injuries is they're very easy to detect with physical exam. Mm-hmm. And there are just four quick maneuvers you can do to rule out a ligament injury. So I would do those tests on physical exam. I'm already going into it thinking it's not not going to be a ligament injury, but we can confirm that with a physical exam. Okay. And no further studies are needed to rule out a ligament injury after we've, exam- after we've taken the history and examined them. So that's that bucket. Uh, a meniscus tear. First off, realize that about 25 to 50% of 63-year-olds have a meniscus tear in both knees. And uh, it's just sort of the gray hair and wrinkles of the knee. That happens to us as we go through life. Uh, meniscus cartilages wear out. And just like the bottom of your pants where it's getting a little fuzzy and frayed, that happens to meniscus cartilages. So if this were a 33-year-old patient with a meniscus tear, I'm going to take that much more seriously and it's going to demand a lot more action than a 63-year-old with a meniscus tear. Because what's hard to know is whether the meniscus tear in this 63-year-old has anything to do with her symptoms or if it's an incidental finding. Sure. So uh, the meniscus bucket for this patient probably isn't that useful, even though we have to realize that it could be the source of her symptoms. It's not likely going to be something we're going to chase down and spend a lot of time on. Uh, The next topic is arthritis. I think that's the most likely thing, again, because we've got a chronic condition. It's in both knees, and it's been exacerbated by this recent trauma. And then it could be a problem of the patellofemoral joint, and there is some overlap there. If you have patellofemoral arthritis, you're technically got a foot in both 
both buckets. You have yeah. an arthritis problem that is in your patellofemoral joint, so you're a patellofemoral patient and an arthritis patient. Uh, the patients who have patellofemoral, like chondromalacia or other diagnoses that aren't arthritis, uh, they sort themselves out because the pain is anterior, as you'd expect, because it's the knee. It's worse with descending stairs. She has that, so that's a little bit of a clue. <clears throat> it's worse with prolonged sitting, the so-called theater sign. That name was given way back when there weren't airplanes and cars. Now you'd say it's the long car ride sign. Uh, and then... Um, you may find on physical exam some crepitation under the patellas. But if basically, if you, if you know those buckets, uh, that's what I, my next step after eliminating emergencies is to try to place the patient in one of those buckets. And, uh, the, the last bucket is none of the above. And I have a, 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 an algorithm for what do you do if your patient doesn't fit any of the buckets? That's another bucket. Uh, and I have a way of, that I, I teach the residents of uh, dealing with those patients. So I guess, uh, to answer your question, that's a long-winded answer to your question. But that patient, as I approach that patient, that would be the approach I would use. And that really sets up the talk. Where would you go next with this specific case? So I, an orthopedic surgeon with an office that has an x-ray machine in it right next to where I'm working and where I can look at the result on the screen in two seconds would shoot x-rays. Okay. And uh, I would expect, I'm going to guess in this patient, what we'll see on the specialized x-ray that looks under the kneecap is that we've got some patellofemoral arthritis. It's a guess. It might be arthritis somewhere else. Uh, and if it did show arthritis, uh, there, and she's very symptomatic. We have some options. Uh, one option is oral anti-inflammatory medications, and I don't know if she's already tried that. Uh, but uh, for arthritis, uh, especially if it's bad, it's going to have to be a pretty high dose, and it may have to be for many months or permanently. Uh, we always talk about uh, oral anti-inflammatory medications the way I was trained as the first rung of treatment because it's very conservative. Sure. But I'm not sure that's accurate for arthritis. Uh, <laughs> if you sprain your ankle and you need oral anti-inflammatory medications for the two weeks it takes to get better, mm -hmm. that's pretty safe. Yeah. Uh, and most ankle sprain patients are young athlete type mm -hmm. people. Uh, this is a different animal. This is an older person for arthritis. Most arthritis, osteoarthritis is in older people. Uh, so we've got an old person with a problem that's not going to be gone in two weeks. So we're going to be using long-term treatment and it's going to take a high dose to help her. So uh, long-term high-dose oral anti-inflammatory medications in older people isn't that safe and conservative. Uh, and you medical people know that better than I do. So we've got stomach lining problems. We've got kidney function problems. So uh, I'm not, I don't always go that direction because in this patient, it may not be as safe as a cortisone shot. So in my practice, a cortisone shot would be a great weapon to use in this scenario. And uh, it's safe. Uh, it's it uh, can be very effective if it's arthritis. Um, so I started the whole thing by saying, this is what I do in my orthopedic office. Uh, in a primary care setting where you don't have x-ray that's easily accessible, you could just pull the trigger on the cortisone injection. Okay. And I can't think of anything on the differential diagnosis where that would be a wrong choice. Mm -hmm. um, the times when a cortisone shot is bad is if there's infection. Uh, we think that corticosteroids mute the immune system a little bit. That's controversial, but most of us think that. So that would be like pouring gas on a fire to put <laughs> cortisone in an infected knee. Uh, the other scenario where it doesn't make sense is acute trauma. Right. And we think that corticosteroids inhibit wound healing. So if this uh, didn't have the chronic component and it was a bad injury and I'm seeing them right afterwards, corticosteroids probably contraindicated there. But other than those two things... Uh, I think a cortisone shot is a very cost-effective, safe and simple mm -hmm. thing to, to use. So I guess uh, to answer your question, in my office, next step would be an x-ray. In your office, it might be a cortisone shot.
So what do you think about the data that, that suggests that hydrocortisone, uh, well, really in, any kind of steroid injection isn't effective for long-term treatment? As yeah, far as I like- think that uh, you know, the, I, I use it pretty liberally in my practice. And I've had great success with it. So my experience is different from that. Uh, and it depends, I guess, on in whom you're using it. It's true that it's not going to be a cure. It's not going to solve the anatomic problem that makes this patient uncomfortable. So it may be successful in getting her back to her baseline discomfort that she had before her acute in, uh, uh, injury. And that's, I think, its role. If patients come in and they're really acutely uncomfortable, a cortisone shot can help take care of that exacerbation and get them back to baseline. But it doesn't solve the anatomic problem. <clears throat> Some people who have baseline discomfort, it will eliminate that. But again, it's only going to be temporary. And uh, we know from our experience in injecting cortisone into athletes that you can't just do it willy-nilly over and over and over again. The uh, consensus thought is that you want to limit those cortisone injections to either one every three or four months uh, or one a month for three months and then no more for the whole year. Uh, and there's controversy over like a lifetime limit. If mm. you've given three, let's say we gave one, one, let's say she gets great relief from the cortisone injection and in five months her symptoms are back. I would say you could inject that patient again because it's been more than four months. And let's say we've done like three or four of those injections. Uh, there's controversy over whether you should stop there or continue. And I think that like a lot of things in medicine and a lot of things in life at that point, let's say our, this exact patient has been getting great relief from cortisone injections. It lasts four or five months. She's been coming in. We're now looking at maybe giving a fifth injection. Uh, at that point, what you need to do is weigh the pluses and the minuses, uh, and, uh, of changing pathways and doing something more aggressive like an operation. Uh, and if it's an old, unhealthy person, uh, it may tip the balance to accept, okay, there's maybe some damage that we do with cortisone, but it's much less risky than taking them to the operating room. If it's a healthy person with a long expected life expectancy, then I think an operation maybe is the best bet for them. Uh, and so I guess like all things, it's patient specific, it's weighing pluses and minuses. And uh, we know that there is, as you mentioned a second ago, there is a minus to cortisone injections. It's mm-hmm. no- nothing we do is completely risk-free, uh, but that minus is finite and it has to be weighed against the minuses of other treatment options. What about the uh, hyaluronic acid injections? Yeah. What do you think about those? The, uh, the So these are uh, the, uh, kind of a funny deal. The, uh, the thought was <clears throat> that we would take the cartilage, you know, in osteoarthritis, the root problem is that the articular cartilage on the end of the bone has worn away. So the idea was, can we put in a chemical that will make that grow back? And people looked at the constituents, the chemical constituents of articular cartilage, and one of those constituents is a chemical called hyaluronate, mm-hmm. also called hyaluronic acid. I've learned not to ever tell patients that I'm going to inject them with hyaluronic acid because all <laughs> they hear is acid, and they're like, they're like, oh, thanks. Hydrochloric acid? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. It sounds a lot like hydrochloric acid. So so the thought was we're going to inject uh, this uh, building block for cartilage, and it's going to build cartilage on the surface of the joint, and uh, that was proven beyond a shadow of a doubt not to happen. But what was observed incidentally in the trials that were used to try to find that result is that a proportion of patients who received them felt symptomatic relief. And the symptomatic relief was in excess of what would expect for the placebo effect. Not much, just barely in excess of the placebo effect, but it was profound enough that the FDA granted this medicine an indication in the use for osteoarthritis. Now, the results, uh, it's a very expensive medicine. And the efficacy is marginal. Um, there are plenty of studies that say that it don't, doesn't work at all. And the studies that do show that it works 
it doesn't work that much better than a saline placebo. So whenever you have something that's very expensive and mediocre in efficacy uh, in today's uh, healthcare economics, you got to wonder, does it really make sense? So I personally don't choose it as a first-line therapy ever. Uh, if they have cortisone and that doesn't work, uh, and they're not interested in surgery or not a good candidate for surgery, I think perhaps it belongs on the menu for that patient. Uh, but it is very expensive and maybe not that effective. So uh, so it's not my first-line thing at all, uh, or not my favorite thing at all. I In the clinic that I most recently worked in at Cashlack, there was a lot of folks who were using topical agents. I found that sometimes in, in really thin elderly folks, you could get by with a topical NSAID. And uh, so do you have... Any use with that? Yeah. Do you have any experience using those or any success? And then the other thing would be like, they would be like, oh, I got this liniment uh, over the counter or, or salon pause. Is yeah. Something like that. And there, do you use yeah. any of those? Uh, well, the, I always tell patients the thing that I do, which is knee replacement surgery or just even surgery in general, what I have is the nuclear weapon. We use my stuff when nothing else works. Right. And I encourage them to try anything, acupuncture, go see a, uh, you know, rub whatever on your knee. Uh, I've stayed away from <laughs> the, the patches because number one, uh, the data scientifically about measuring how much actually gets into the joint for a joint like the knee is pretty small. Uh, and number two, and this is really the most important thing that's guided my behavior is that in where I work, it's a lot of paperwork to get these things approved. And I just, can't afford the brain damage of doing that. So, so the, I'm, I'm very happy for them to use those patches if they can get them somewhere else. Uh, but I'm not prescribing them. Uh, but, but the, the general idea is try everything you can, orthodox and unorthodox. And if you're still struggling, uh, I've got an answer for you, but it's a big deal. It's an operation. Okay. Yeah. I, I generally don't use the lidocaine patches. Usually what I use is like the cream and I'll, or, or I'll have the patients mix it with Voltaren to help with penetration. Yeah. But. Yeah, and there are all kinds of, uh, we could go, it's really interesting. There are lots yeah. of, of these things, uh, and we talk a lot about in the book because, you know, we're all scientists as medical doctors. We're scientists. And part of the job description for a scientist is to be a skeptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that's what we're supposed to be. Uh, but at the same time, you also, if you're a good scientist, you're open-minded. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the things that uh, we scoff at or are taught to scoff at in, in our medical training uh, could someday be the next big thing that works really right. well. So right. all of these things that we're talking about, I'm open-minded to them, uh, and uh, time will tell. If they work, we'll know about it because uh, patients will report that they work well. So what I like about this discussion is I feel like it's a microcosm of healthcare to some extent because we have... Already treated Ms. Bones. <laughs> she came to the office, gave a story, we shot the film, and she's already, we're already talking surgery. Um, I, I did, I was wondering if we, if we could go back to the history for, for just a minute and just, cause sometimes I see things in ortho notes where I feel like people always ask, is it worse going up or going down the stairs or does it lock or does it give out? Are there any historical details? that you ask every single time because it helps kind of guide your differential diagnosis and towards one of those four buckets? Yeah. The one question is, I do ask about ascending, descending stairs. And uh, the, the, the word on the street, and I've experienced it myself, is that patellofemoral joint problems bother people the most descending stairs. Uh, and I've seen that to be true. Uh, there's a biomechanical explanation for it, uh, which we could go into, but it's pretty boring. So I just memorized that going downstairs has a high chance of correlating with patellofemoral problems. Uh, so I ask about that. I ask about swelling. Um, I ask about um, 
whether the pain is relieved with things like oral anti-inflammatory medications, which might give me a clue that there's an inflammatory component to what's going on. And then I ask about mechanical symptoms like locking, catching, or instability. And instability is a strong clue for me that they may have a ligament deficient knee. Uh, and, and those are the basics. But I think one of the things, it, I observe the residents that I train who are medical residents, and I'll ask them to get the history. And then an hour later, I'll go back in the room. I say, what happened here? What's going on? Because uh, this should take about 10 seconds. Right. Okay. Yeah. And like me, when I'm doing something I'm not familiar with, and we're all good Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, we don't want to miss anything. We want to be complete. So we go into way, way too much depth. And they're doing exactly that. They're trying to be a good soldier and do the right job. Uh, but honestly, the thing that I do in orthopedics and the thing that the primary care orthopedist should do is much more streamlined than what's happening uh, in, in many venues right now. Yeah. Do you, is morning stiffness on the menu of things that you have? I haven't seen that to really be specific enough. It, okay. it's, it's a sensitive thing. It means that something's irritating the joint. And the textbooks always say, you know, this is the type of stiffness you get with arthritis. But honestly, I haven't seen that to be useful enough to make it, to, to, to have it deserve a spot on my limited time okay. frame. So you're, you, just to recap for the audience, we have ascending or descending stairs. If it's specifically descending stairs, it's patellofemoral potentially. We have swelling, uh, do oral anti-inflammatories help, and then instability type symptoms. Yeah, with locking in or catching, correct? Ca- the mechanical locking or catching. Symptoms, yeah. And she gave us a symptom of the knee giving out. I get that mm-hmm. symptom all the time. Should yes. I just, just ignore that complaint? Like, no, does I would... everything make it give out or <laughs> no, is that instability? Well, here's the, here are the things that can cause instability. And realize that patients may report instability that isn't really instability at all. I have a... Uh, I have a friend, a really good friend. I was almost said his name, which would be a big, big mistake. Um, I have a friend who's a total hypochondriac, and uh, he called me in a panic because his ankle was giving out on him. And after talking to him a couple of minutes, I realized that he has a click in his ankle when he goes up and down the stairs, which I think every human being has. Uh, and that, for him, was insta- that was giving out, okay? Uh, so first thing, we got to kind of ask a little couple questions to see what we're really dealing with. Okay. Uh, and uh, there's sort of a perceived giving out versus real live giving out. And uh, the the things that cause giving way are number one, a ligament deficiency. The ligaments hold the joint stable. If it's not there or injured, it can give out. Uh, also, muscle weakness can cause giving out. Uh, okay. And uh, that can be either because you're protecting from pain uh, or the muscles weak from some other condition. Uh, you can also have an area on the cert, there's called reflex giving way, which happens because there's a, a place in the joint that when it articulates is acutely painful, mm-hmm. just like a dentist touching a cavity with a metal yeah. probe, and that your leg will go like a noodle when you do when you line it up like that because uh, it, it's almost like when you're walking on the street and you think you see a stick and you don't and your leg goes noodly. It, it's a reflex; it's not real, but your knee's doing that to protect itself. So, I bet you that's what these patients. My, my patients are either getting the, the latter two that you said the 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 really elderly people that tell me they give out the knee's been there. It's been a bad knee for ten fifteen yes. years and they're wasted. Yep. Or or they they hit that sweet spot where yes, just like exactly okay. sweet spot's a good way to put it because it's a discrete location. It doesn't happen with every flexion extension cycle, but it will happen once in a while. And when it happens, the knee just goes loose, and so that that's reflex giving way. Okay. So those are all ways to experience instability, and they have very different uh, uh, pathology behind them. Okay. Fantastic explanation. Thank you. Related to our case, there's just two, I guess, two loose ends I wanted to tie up. One of them, we mentioned we got films on on this lady, but what are the most, uh, you know, it's like, do you want one view, two views, yes. three views, five views? Yes. Can you tell us, like, what do we need to order? Yeah, we need to spend some time on this because it's uh, one of the things where there's a big uh, 
room for improvement uh, in terms of what imaging we do. And we're talking about x-rays, which on the scale of things are pretty inexpensive mm-hmm. and pretty high yield, especially in this case. So I think that's a good uh, choice if we're going to do imaging. And uh, the the problem that is currently happening in the primary care residents that I train is they are taught to request a knee series or a three-view series, or they kind of look at the menu and check off something like ordering Chinese food. And guilty. I'm yeah, guilty. yeah. Well, I'm an attending. I'm sure. Guilty. No, Whatever that, does the most views. I mean, yeah, exactly. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Grace and sure, that's a thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, and the reason that is less helpful is that uh, the standard series everywhere, every uh, imaging center, every hospital, every urgent care is going to be a non-weight-bearing AP, a lateral, and a set of obliques. And uh, the reason that that series is what is so popular is that in the emergency room, your job is to rule out a fracture. It doesn't matter to me as an emergency room provider whether the patient has an ACL tear, a meniscus tear, a sprain of the caps. I just want to know the fractures because the fractures have to be treated non-weight-bearing or the fracture will displace, and that's bad for the patient. So the job of the emergency room physician provider, I said physician could be any provider, is to, number one, rule out a fracture in a patient in the emergency room with knee trauma. And uh, those x-rays are good for that. Uh, if you want to look for a crack in your coffee cup, you kind of rotate it around in your hand. And that's all we're doing with that series, AP lateral obliques, where we're just panoramaing around the, the knee, okay? Yeah. Uh, it's not the series that we would use for this patient we're discussing, okay? The right. patient in our office, I'm not worried about fracture on her at all. It's not even on the differential. If it is, it's at the very, very bottom. <laughs> so what I am thinking about is uh, arthritis, and the x-ray finding that's helpful there is joint space narrowing. And uh, this is going to be hard to explain without uh, in a, an audio-only presentation. But uh, what happens in arthritis is the layer of cartilage on the surface of the bone gets worn away. And that is manifest by a very, very easy-to-observe x-ray finding in a standing film. A standing AP should show the femur bone above, the tibia bone below, and a gap quarter-inch gap between the two bones. And what's in that gap is a layer of healthy articular cartilage on the femur, articulating with a layer of healthy articular cartilage on the tibia. And the sum of those two spaces, realize that cartilage doesn't show up on x-ray, so it comes out as a clear space. That space uh, is the cartilage, okay? Mm-hmm. And in arthritis, that gets narrow or goes away completely, in which case you have bone-on-bone. Mm-hmm. You will only see that with a weight-bearing film. If you take somebody who has bone-on-bone contact and have them lie down for a non-weight-bearing film, the bones relax away from each other, and you can see a space that tricks you into thinking there's cartilage, and there isn't. Okay. So a weight-bearing film, critical, weight-bearing mm-hmm. AP film. Um, the other view that is never ordered if you check the, the series is a view that peers underneath the patella, under the kneecap. It's called the merchant's view or the sunrise view or the sub-patellar view. And uh, I really wish I could show images because I've got some great examples uh, of that. We can link to them in the show notes. Great. So that'll be really helpful to see because I'm going to show an example of the what a merchant's view x-ray looks like. Yeah. And I'll put a normal one right next to an abnormal one. And basically what we'll see in the merchant's view is number one is the patella centered above the femur. And number two, is there good joint space there? That's an articulation also uh, serviced with cartilage. And patellofemoral arthritis is the condition where that gets thin or gone. And you won't see that with a, 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 the, the series. So you got to get this uh, sunrise view, the merchant's view, also called the subpatellar view. And then uh, a third view that's really helpful and hard to explain, again, without imaging, uh, or without images, is uh, what's called the Rosenberg's view or the flexed knee weight-bearing view. 
And this helps you identify a subset of patients with arthritis who have uh, wear on the posterior femur, uh, but they and all of the tibia, but they have some cartilage anteriorly. So in a knee extended with a knee in extension, the joint space looks pretty good. But when you flex them down and get a weight bearing view, you see bone on bone change. Ah, okay. So including that view, you'll throw a much bigger net and able to, to capture much more than if you omit that view. So that's three views. There's a fourth view that is in, that is a standard in the series that I order, which is the lateral. It's the least helpful, least uh, important view. So if the insurance companies ever say, you only get three views, I'm going to ditch the lateral, but <laughs> stick with those first three. So uh, use those three instead of the three series that, that you get by checking the box. Beautiful. Now, she wants to know if she should be wearing a knee brace along with the treatment. We've already tried some topical stuff. We we injected her knee. Is a knee brace going to help her at all? That's a great question. And uh, it's a little controversial. And there are a couple different braces to consider. Uh, number one, we usually in orthopedics use braces as ligament substitutes. So if you think about a brace as an apparatus that you put on your leg and it has a hinge on the medial and lateral sides that allow for flexion and extension range of motion, but it doesn't let the knee wiggle in abnormal positions without a ligament, let's say you have a ligament deficient knee, mm -hmm. that's the problem is you not only have flex and extension motion, which is normal, but you have an abnormal motion where your knee gives out on you because the ligament isn't there to stop that. Mm -hmm. So a hinge brace can be used to substitute for a ligament and we use braces in that context all the time. Okay. But this patient we're talking about doesn't have a ligament nope. uh, deficiency, so it, that isn't applicable to this patient. So for this patient, we have two braces that we can offer them. One that I think probably doesn't do anything and that is a El Cheapo sleeve brace that you pull on you get it, at but the, it looks cool. It looks really cool, and you look like an athlete when you're wearing that thing. It does not. <laughs> Paul wears what? Paul wears what around the hospital the over top of his khakis. Yeah, that, there you go. Just they know they're messing with. They're, yeah, exactly. Um, so they're inexpensive. You can get them at the pharmacy or the drugstore, and some of them have little metal hinges built into them. Some of them do not. They're typically neoprene. Some have a hole for the patella, and these braces probably don't do anything. There's some information that they increase or heighten proprioception by rubbing against the skin. Great. I'm not sure that really <laughs> does anything for us. Uh, they do keep the joint warm, and there's some information that uh, an arthritic joint performs better when it's warm. Uh, but, I, you know, it's controversial whether that really is doing anything, okay? When Paul wears it over his khakis, it keeps that knee really warm. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I don't even wear khakis. I'm not sure where the show is coming from. Uh, yeah, especially in the summer in Philadelphia. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so that brace exists and that would probably be something I wouldn't prescribe, but I would say, you know, one thing you could try is you could go to your drugstore and just pick up one of those cheap braces, try it for a week. And if you like it, use it. There's no harm in doing that. Uh, the bigger braces that, uh, substitute for the ligaments, uh, there's uh, some truth to the fact that like a cast by immobilizing the knee in some respects, it promotes muscle weakness over long periods of time. But those flexible braces aren't able to do that. So I'm not worried about promoting atrophy mm -hmm. by using the brace. And then the third brace we'll talk about. So we talked about the ligament substitution brace, the probably not important flexible cheapo brace. And the third brace is what's called an unloader brace. And this is a brace that would work maybe if uh, the patient has asymmetric wear, meaning that uh, let's say the medial side of the knee is down to bone and the lateral side of the knee has a healthy amount of cartilage on it. The idea behind the brace is it's going to go onto the leg and it's going to put pressure on the leg to shift the weight 
off of the medial side and onto the lateral side. Mm-hmm. So that's the name unloader brace. Uh, so it's kind of uncomfortable. It pushes on your skin pretty hard. Yeah. And uh, as soon as you take it off, the effect is gone. So it only works when it's on. And uh, a lot of patients will report that uh, it didn't help that much. Uh, as soon as you stand, I mean, the weight, a human body weight is going to probably overwhelm the ability of that brace to transfer forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in my experience, they're not covered much by insurance. They're expensive, about 400 bucks. Oh, wow. And uh, three out of four patients I've prescribed it to come back and slam it on the table and say, good grief, I paid a fortune this thing and it's a piece of junk. So uh, that's a little harsh. I think for some patients they work. Uh, 25% of patients do get relief from them. So I think it belongs on our treatment algorithm, but uh, don't get your hopes up. Okay. What about like a, a lateral shoe insert for... Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. So if you have asymmetric wear... Uh, it's controversial whether putting something in your shoe can also shift the weight. And this is something that's debated a lot in the meetings I go to. And uh, I don't think the evidence has been strong enough for me to do that, to recommend that. Uh, but some orthopedists feel strongly that it does work and, and will recommend that. I think we should talk about the exam with uh, with the rest of our time here. And then maybe, maybe some quickly, we, you can give us some bullet points on PRP and stem cells if we have time. I'd love to do that. Time. So... When you're examining a patient, I'm a new, let's say I'm a new internal medicine resident or med student examining a knee for the first time. Like what maneuvers do I need to do that are high yield that I should have in my repertoire? Yeah, I think that the the physical exam probably in general, but especially in orthopedics for a newbie is overwhelming and and seems just, you know, <laughs> unfathomable. It's so right. comprehensive. And uh, I think that we need to pare that down to just the essentials. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us see a lot of patients every day and we're under time constraints. And to be honest with you, you can have a very high-yield exam that takes less than 30 seconds to administer. Uh, and it, it's an exam that covers all the diagnoses that we're interested in. I like the sound of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I, I could describe it uh, verbally to you, but that's going to be, it's going to come very short of being able okay. to teach it. Yeah. Um, but uh, I can give you, let me just give you the bullet points on what that exam. In, yeah. In, and we can put up some videos of, of this being done or, or, yeah. or links to If you to want, videos. I can do it on one of you guys. Uh, I think and, that's good. Uh, Dr. Brigham happens to be wearing some shorts. Yeah. He's got perfect. lovely legs. Excellent. And he'd, be, he'd be willing to uh, be our model. Okay. <laughs> fantastic. Uh, so uh, I'll do it uh, sort of verbally with bullet point format and then we'll have a chance to film it. Okay. Okay. So uh, the first part of the exam is to watch the patient walk and I'm looking for a limp. Uh, I'm looking for weird gait abnormalities, uh, but really I'm just looking for a limp. Okay. And it can be five feet of walking. You don't have to take them out in the hallway and have them walk a hundred paces, nothing like that. I'll often do that just watching them go into the exam room Mm -hmm. or walk off to x-ray or walk out to the front when they're done. So watch them walk for a few feet just to get a feeling for whether they have some hideous limp, which would be a really a shame to miss. Okay. (laughs) Because otherwise I'll walk in the room, they're sitting on the table. I do my thing. I leave. I might not watch them walk and they have a hideous limp that I didn't even recognize. So it's embarrassing when that happens. You got to watch them walk. Yeah. Uh, The next thing is always make sure they're in shorts or a gown or something that lets you see their skin. Uh, that's also embarrassing to miss, like a big draining wound or something. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, patients fill out a little questionnaire in my office, and one of the questions is, have you ever had surgery? And I can't tell you how many times that's blank, but there's a huge scar, yeah. Frankenstein scar on the front of the knee. And that scar tells me a lot about uh, you know previous injury, previous surgery. So uh, look at the skin. Uh, you'll also things, see things like swelling and, and atrophy and other things. That, so uh, I've learned the hard way. Don't get lazy. Have the patients get into shorts or a gown and just 
glance at the skin. It takes a second, and you learn a lot. So that's a high-yield thing. Uh, the first thing I'll have them do is I'll have them sit on the edge of the exam table with their knees hanging down at 90 degrees bent at the knee. And then I'll put my hand on each kneecap one at a time, and I'll ask them to flex and extend their knee up and down through a flexion extension arc. And what I'm feeling for there is crepitus under the patella. And that's a really common thing. Uh, we humans wear our kneecaps out a lot. A lot of people have that crepitation. It means nothing. Well, it means something. It means early wear, but it isn't clinically consequent. Uh, and uh, it only means something to me if I feel that. And it's a lot worse on the side that they're complaining about than the other side. Mm-hmm. And that correlates with wear and tear in the patellofemoral joint. So I check for that. Does the quality matter? I hear this sort of fine versus coarse crepitus. Does that make any difference in terms of... Boy, you know, if it does, I'm missing the boat on that because uh, I'm not grading the quality of it. Uh, but it's uh, really just in excess of the other side is sure. what I'm looking for. So uh, so then I'm going to have them lie on their back uh, in the supine position with their legs out straight. And uh, right away, just by being in that position, I'm getting one of the elements that I want to put on my physical exam report, which is what the extension range of motion limit is. Uh, one of the things that probably ought to be in every knee exam is just the limits of range of motion. And when it's fully straight, bolt out like a straight board, that's full extension. And if it bends a little bit and can't go flat on the table, that's a lack of full extension. And you can guesstimate how many degrees that is. You don't need to buy a little hinged goniometer like I have, uh, but just take an estimate, you know. Uh, And then I'm going to bend the knee so that I bring their heel toward their bottom. And that's going to give me two things at once. It gives me the flexion end of their range of motion limit. And also when you flex a human knee, the posterior femur comes to bear down hard against the meniscus. And if you have a meniscus tear, that will usually recreate the joint line tenderness on the side where the meniscus tear is. So if flexing their knee causes generalized pain, that's not useful. But if it causes pinpoint pain at the joint line, that's a sign that they may have a meniscus tear on that side, medial or lateral. So we get two for one there. We get the flexion, range of motion limit, and we get a sign for a meniscus tear. Now, while they're up there in flexion, I'll put one hand on their foot, the other hand on their knee, and I'll rotate their hip joint through a full range of motion. And it's definitely true that the hip has a reputation for telecasting pain down to the knee. And uh, that uh, those patients, there are a handful of patients I see every year who have zero hip complaints. They're always talking about their knee. Their knee is 100% squeaky clean normal, and their hip is badly arthritic. And uh, that patient is going to do horribly with any knee treatment because we're barking up the wrong tree. So this is a quick screen that screens out the hip patients. If the patient has an uh, inflamed hip, arthritic hip, a sensitive hip, you'll find it on that test. That test, as you rotate the leg through internal external rotation at the hip, uh, imagine the hip joint that's that's, uh, inflamed. The capsule, which holds the fluid in the joint, is tense with fluid. And when you do that, it's wringing out a wash rag. It's taking that capsule and putting it under tremendous force uh, or tension. So they have uh, pain and stiffness when you do that, okay? And if they're, or if they're the patient who doesn't perceive pain in the hip, they'll have profound stiffness, different okay. from their other side, okay? So that's a great little screening test. Takes two seconds, and then you're going to find those patients whose knee pain is actually hip pain. Yeah. And there there are a wow. finite number of those. Um in the exact same position, or maybe even simultaneously as I'm doing that, the hand that's on the knee can feel the joint line and press on the joint line to detect joint line tenderness. Okay, so I check for joint line tenderness. Joint line tenderness can mean a meniscus tear. It can mean arthritis in that part of the knee. So I'm testing for that. Uh, and then also in that same position up there, I'm going to check a test called McMurray's test. And McMurray's test is my favorite test for finding meniscus tears. Uh, and as we talked about in the group yesterday, the problem with, with McMurray's test is that it's hard to teach. 
Yeah. And it's critical that it be done right. And I actually did it wrong for the first couple years in practice because I was taught uh, a wrong <laughs> technique. Uh, and I've since figured out how to really do it. And if you do it right, it's a very good technique that's sensitive and specific. Okay. Uh, and, and, and so I'm going to do my best to, to teach that, but, uh, but it's hard to learn, but that should be in there too. Okay. And then the so last. They got to see it. They got to hear it, see it and do it. So we'll, that's we'll right. This provide. is a do it thing for sure. <laughs> and then we finished the exam by bringing them back out into, into full extension. And we'll check the ligaments. And uh, there are four important ligaments, the collateral ligaments, medial and lateral, the anterior cruciate ligament, and the posterior cruciate ligament. And the posterior cruciate ligament, you can just forget. Uh, the pathology there is rare. Uh, I, I maybe see, I see a zillion knees every day and I maybe see one or two PCL tears a year. Mm -hmm. So for a primary care doctor, I think it's probably just pollution to put PCL test in there and it just is going to make things more complicated and confusing. So let's just say that there are three ligaments we want to check. The medial collateral ligament, the lateral collateral ligament, and the ACL. And uh, to test the collateral ligaments, uh, it's easiest to put the knee in extension and then just hold the top segment, which is the femur or the thigh with one hand, put your hand at the ankle down below your other hand, and you're going to push the leg, which means from the knee to the ankle, you're going to push that segment of the patient's body toward the midline, which is going to stretch the lateral collateral ligament or pull it away from the midline, which is going to stretch the medial collateral ligament. So those are the tests. And when you do that test, what we're looking for is how much does the joint open up? And don't forget that there's a huge variability from person to person in what is normal for opening. So you can't, it's inconvenient, but you can't memorize a certain number of millimeters yeah. as normal. The way we figure normal out is we test their other uninjured knee. Mm -hmm. And in the same person from right to left, there's very little variability. So uh, there, there have been a couple studies with cadavers and other studies that indicate if it's more than three millimeters in excess of the other side, that's pathology. Okay. okay, so you got a three millimeter grace wiggle. Got it. Uh, and, uh, and I know most people are like, millimeters? How am I feeling millimeters? And it's true. <clears throat> it's hard to feel a millimeter, a two, three yeah. millimeters, but you'll see if it's, if the ligament's gone, it'll be profoundly and noticeably different than the other side. When you're doing the varus and valgus stress, are, is the knee in full extension or does it have to be slightly flexed? Well, sure. that's a good question. The, technically, if it's in full extension, the posterior capsule is tight and being tight, it's going to mute how much motion there is. Uh, so ideally, the best way to do it is inflection. The problem is inflection, you can't apply various, it just rotates the hip. Right. So I compromise, I put them in full extension, I know that's going to mute the laxity some, but it's impractical to check Varus and Val. It's funny, so many books and so many uh, right. uh, recommendations are, you've got to flex like it. Well, if you flex it, try it. Take a bent piece of pipe, hold it in one hand and try to you can't. Yeah, it just rotates. the patient over yeah. the exam table. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, so that's a great thing theoretically, but in real down in the trenches practice, the knee's got to be an extension. It's the only way you're going to check varus valgus laxity accurately. Hmm. And I think so. Probably now we can do the physical exam. Wait, we're what? not done. Oh, we're not oh, done. No, okay. no, we got <laughs> oh. we've got the ACL. Okay, got it. Uh, and oh, then yeah. we're I'm done. Sorry. Okay, I'm so we got two. We said we're going to limit it to three ligaments. We just checked two of them. <laughs> I never examined the ACL. Yeah. That's oh, okay. That's all right. Changing. For never me. really heard of it. I don't know. It's a new ligament. Just last year the first time it showed up um so uh the, the acl test that i was taught which is the drawer test mm -hmm. flex yeah. the knee 90 degrees you sit on the foot and tug the tibia forward theoretically that should be a great test because the acl is in there to prevent the tibia from translating anteriorly and by tugging the, an the tibia anteriorly we should see if there's a side-to-side -side difference uh and it's a good test but it's not a great test and the reason it's not great is a structure in our leg called the iliotibial band 
tight, strong band of connective tissue that goes from the hip across the knee distally and attaches to the tibia below the knee joint. And in the drawer position, the IT band, like that line, will get tight as you tug the tibia forward. So it can mute how far the tibia translates anteriorly when you tug on it in the drawer position. So Lachman's test is to do the same thing, only do it in 30 degrees of flexion. And in 30 degrees of flexion, we're pulling this way. The IT band isn't in a position to resist it. So what Lachman did is he took cadaver knees, cut the ACLs, put them in a machine that would put a set force to anteriorly translate the tibia and try different flexion angles to see where the sweet spot is and where that motion is the most. And it's Uh not at 90 degrees because the IT band is there. It's not in full extension because the posterior capsule is there. The sweet one is 30 degrees. Wow. 30 degrees, everybody else is maximally relaxed. So a knee with an ACL deficiency that might have moved five millimeters in the drawer test will move a centimeter in Lachman's test. So I always tell the residents, if you have the type of hands that can detect fractions of a millimeter of difference, you don't, you could examine them in any position you want. But for me, to amplify the motion the most and be able to feel right. it the best, use the Lachman's test because the knee's most relaxed there. The, the, the other secondary structures are most loose there. And the ACL deficiency will be most pronounced there. Okay. You'll have a better chance of picking it up. Okay, so with with the last uh, with the last few minutes here, if you could just tell us about these more advanced or newer therapies that patients are coming in asking us about, can I get PRP injections? Can I get stem cell therapy? What, right. What's your thought thinking there? Is there evidence for it? Does it work? Yeah, good question. And uh, we need to dig into that a little deeper because the answers are a little bit complicated. They are new, so time's going to tell in both instances, but I'll give you my take on where things stand right now. Okay. Uh, let's take PRP first. PRP stands for platelet-rich plasma. Uh, so all of us uh, learned in third grade that platelets are the things in our blood that link together to make a scab, uh, that, that we got that way before medical school. Sure. Uh, but what's also true, but I didn't learn until medical school, is that when the platelets link together, they jettison little packets of important chemicals. And we're just now starting to understand what they are. There are zillions of them. Some of them we know and have even sequenced, uh, growth t- tissue growth factors, cytokines, proteins. Uh, some of them we haven't even thought about yet that we haven't discovered. So there are many, many of these chemicals that are released when the platelets aggregate. And if you were going to design the system, that's exactly what you do. Your first responder, the platelet, would be the great person to let loose these packets of fairy dust that help healing. So uh, that happens uh, in wounds when, when they heal. And what, what, is, what we're attempting in with PRP injections is to make that happen uh, in other places, not just in trauma. So it's easy to get platelets. You can centrifuge the blood from the patient. So you don't have to worry about giving them a disease from the, the product you're injecting. Uh, a centrifuge uh, will easily separate the buffy coat, which has uh, the platelets in it. And then you take that and inject it into the place that you're interested in. And the thought was that we are delivering a high concentration of platelets, which have these important fairy dust particles, and those are going to promote healing. Uh, it sounds good on paper. Uh, unfortunately, we haven't been able to demonstrate rigorously that this really works. Okay. Uh, and there are anecdotal reports. There are some increased patient satisfaction studies. But anatomically, as far as a rigorous study that shows, look at this. This thing really healed better with these platelet-rich plasma injections. That is lacking. Okay. So uh, right now, I'd say that it's uh, in, because of that, it hasn't really gained FDA approval and isn't covered by insurance. So it's an out-of-pocket thing. And that makes things even more complicated because yeah. now we're saying we can charge a bunch for it. And, and so everything's complicated with PRP. How many visits 
do they typically get for PRP? Is it's it all a, over the map. Sometimes okay. it's a one injection. Sometimes it's an injection every week for ten weeks. Yeah, uh, and which also makes you suspicious. I just don't know uh, where how that's going to sort out. Uh, we talked a little while ago. I can't remember if this was on the recording or not. That uh, we want to be skeptical, you know, yeah. and uh, and so I'm approaching this as a skeptic, but I'm trying to keep an open mind. Yeah, and the, the truth of the matter is, if that fairy dust is magical. We'll know about it. We'll see profound results in yeah. multiple clinical studies that will okay. be undeniable. So far, hadn't happened. Okay. All right. And stem cells. So stem cells. I can't see a patient in the office without being asked about <laughs> stem cells. Stem cells are the cure-all for everything. And yep. the truth is they probably are. Stem cells, you know, being able to differentiate into any tissue type you can imagine, they probably have the potential to cure anything that, that we can go wrong with us. Uh, but it's the potential. It is a not yet realized potential. So in my field where we battle against the loss of articular cartilage, and we'll take our example. Let's say that we got an x-ray on, on uh, Anita, yeah. and uh, the x-rays showed that she has a big area uh, in her knee where the cartilage is worn down to bone. She's got bone-on-bone arthritis in the patellofemoral joint, let's say. So it would be really cool to inject her knee with stem cells and have the stem cells differentiate into chondroblasts, the cells that make cartilage, and have her repave those surfaces with cartilage. That would be awesome. And it would be a simple squirt of a needle. Okay. Sure. Uh, and that's what people are saying they're doing when they're administering these stem cell injections. But if you think about it for even half of a second, you realize that this is a really a stretch of the imagination. Um, it is true that you can make stem cells differentiate into chondroblasts, and that's been done. There are labs where that has happened. Uh, you can also sprinkle the right chemicals onto the chondroblast that you derive that way and make them make cartilage. Mm-hmm. That's been done. So far, the cartilage that's being made that way in the lab and, and, and paving petri dishes all over the country, that, that cartilage is poor quality. You can put okay. your finger through it. Okay. It. So we're missing some ingredients or maybe there's some local factors that need to be there to make it hard, durable, resilient, low friction cartilage. But maybe we need PRP and stem cells. We do. Together. Yes. Sure. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so. And then take uh, the conjointin supplements. And, <laughs> exactly. Yes. So, uh, we're, we, you know, this, it has the potential to do that. But let's say, I'm going to grant for a second that there's a lab out there that I don't know about that is paving petri dishes with hard, resilient, beautiful cartilage. Um, if we inject the stem cells into your knee, you're going to get a blob of that hard, resilient cartilage in the center of your knee or wherever the injection went. Oh, yeah. And that is not helpful. In fact, that's going to be harmful yeah. to have a, a loose body like that. What really has to happen is the stem cells have to land inside the knee, parachute inside the knee. They land in there and they've got to look around and it's dark in there, but they got to look around and they got to say, "Oh, look over there! Anita has a big bald spot on the right <laughs> on the media, on the patella." So they have to have eyes. They don't have eyes. Then they've got to swim over there. They'd have no motility, but they'd have to get there somehow, and they'd have to land on the bone and irreversibly bond to the bone, and then they'd have to click on the cartilage making switch and make it until the cartilage has been built up just the right thickness equal to the thickness around that hasn't been worn away. And then they got to turn it off. So that's a lot to ask of these cells. And we have not figured out how to do that yet. So uh, until we figure that out, uh, and it's funny, you can imagine maybe uh, a shortcut where um, let's say that Anita has that problem and I can grow 
good cartilage on a Petri dish. We might be able to take a CT scan of Anita's knee, use the CT scan to make a little model of her knee and grow the cartilage on that. Sort of like you see a wig on a, one of those yeah. styrofoam 3D heads. 3D print it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and then it gets mailed to me as a surgeon and I peel it off the, like a swimming cap and put it on, you know, you can imagine things like that, but it's all science fiction right now. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons that stem cells are popular is everybody knows lay people know stem cell equals magic. Okay. And then the other thing, there have been some studies, the studies that exist now that are good studies are number one, showing safety. And I think it's, it's really indisputable that it's safe to give these injections. Mm -hmm. Uh, one of the things that concern people is stem cells being pluripotent could just grow and grow and grow and make a tumor. Yeah. And there've been lots of surveillance MRIs that have shown that that does not happen. Good. Uh, so we know they're safe. Uh, you can be sloppy with any injection and cause an infection. So there's that, that risk, but they're safe in terms of the things that we were worrying about. Uh, also, there have been a lot of studies that show efficacy in terms of subjective satisfaction. If you fill out a questionnaire afterwards, people will in some studies say, wow, I, that really helped me profoundly. But when I say it doesn't work, I'm saying that there's never been one lab animal or human being for whom the anatomy's changed. Yeah. We've not been able to demonstrate with an MRI or looking okay. in with a scope or any other way that the bald spot that lacked cartilage suddenly has articular cartilage. Mm-hmm. Okay. That, and, and so I'm thinking anatomically when I say it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so I think we'll get it to work someday. I really do. I think in our lifetimes, we'll be able to grow biological cartilage, which will be a much better solution than the metal and plastic I'm putting in right now <laughs> for, for that problem. But we're not there yet. Paul, you any uh, any final things? You just you just kind of threw out there glucosamine chondroitin. I feel like we can can we quickly can we quickly address that one? Yeah, that- I think that uh, it's a lot like uh, the high oxygen injections, only even a, a more remote possibility. So uh, I, I was I always say in the lectures that uh, you know we talked about looking at cartilage, understanding what its chemical components are. And in this instance, we're going to eat the chemical components, okay? (laughs) Glucosamine, sulfate, chondrite. These are all things that make up cartilage. Yeah. And we're expecting it to go down our throat and into our knee. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And uh, I always tell the people in the lecture, if things work like that, I would run out of this room to the barber shop and eat all the hair off the floor (laughs) to fill in this really embarrassing spot I have on the back of my head. It doesn't work like that where there isn't a root from our mouth to the surface of our femur. Uh, So uh, I, I... but again, like some of the other things we're talking about, there are survey studies that show that patients subjectively feel better. Right. Is that the placebo effect? Maybe. Uh, is it that it's working not by rebuilding cartilage, but it's working through some novel anti-inflammatory pathway? Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the history of medicine, most of the medicines we use, aspirin, for instance, the, uh, the effect was observed way before we worked out the mechanism. So this may be an effect that exists that's real right. that we just don't understand, but it isn't growing cartilage on the surface of the bone. Sure. That we're certain is not happening. And there's a there's a study I could link to in the show notes. We we had talked about this. There was they, they used pharmaceutical grade chondroitin sulfate. I think it was like 800 milligrams a couple times a day versus NSAIDs. And I this was in a British journal. I can't remember the exact uh, it's been a while, but they they showed it was it was either equal to or better than whatever was the standard analgesia uh, at the time, but 
I'm still skeptical. And, and when I tried to look it up, it's it's not something that I can like easily point my patients to to find this pharmaceutical grade chondroitin yeah. sulfate. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So. And it's, I'm always a little nervous about the subjective result studies. Uh, mm-hmm. As a mechanic, I want to see changes in anatomy. Yeah. Then that convinces me that it's working. Okay. So, uh, so when I, I kind of poo poo a lot of this stuff because it's not meeting my standard, which is anatomic change. I want to okay. see cartilage. And Got it. If it's not happening, uh, then I'm not that interested. We always, we always ask our guests to give a couple take-home points for the audience, uh, maybe two or three that you think are really key things that they should remember about the knee. Yeah, I think the, the most important take-home point, and this is really critical, is buy a lot of these books, um, at least three. <laughs> there's only 19 uh, left. I think there were 20 to start, and there's 19 left on right, Amazon. <laughs> it's been on sale for several I, years at this they point. They may return that one. So, uh, so Okay. Uh, yeah. All kidding aside, though, I think the book is, is a great resource for all this stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to say specifically because I want to look more forest than trees uh, and, and really give people an approach more than specifics. Yeah. So uh, I think the, the real take-home things is, are that when you see a patient with an orthopedic problem, number one, sort out the emergency people. Uh, and, and that's hard to do. And the less familiar you are with orthopedics, the more likely you are to miss an emergency. So for a person who's not very familiar, have a low threshold for sending it to an orthopedist or the emergency room. Use your gut. If it doesn't look right, if something doesn't smell right about this case, uh, play safe and, and have them seek uh, specialty uh, evaluation. Excellent. And we'll have uh, we'll have lots of resources along with this talk. This has been so great. Thank you. I oh, it's really my pleasure. I really enjoyed time. it. That was really fun. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yes. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, or you can sign up to receive them directly to your email at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. And good morning. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye. Good night. And thank you to our in studio producer and videographer, Dr. Christopher Chu Man Chu, to Nora Toronto for writing this episode, and to all our correspondents who helped to produce the show and our show notes. Our social media team is Hannah Abrams on Twitter, still thinking of a nickname for her and for Beth, Beth Garbatelli, who is our on Instagram, and for Chris Chu Man Chu on Facebook. Thank you and good night. I recorded that one, guys. Strong. Oh, good.